Welcome to Laugh at the Odds podcast with Heidi and Dave. We are here to laugh at the odds and live our lives so well that death will tremble to take us. Named after this Charles Bukowski quote on the meaning of life, Laugh at the Odds is a he said, she said podcast about surviving the loss of a spouse or partner through the lens of a young interracial widowed couple. This is episode eight, Resilience and Rewriting Your Story with Kristen Meekoff. In this episode, we speak with Kristen Meekoff about her work as a therapist, wellness coach, and her writing. We will delve into the research she did for her work and what she learned about resilience and storytelling from speaking with widows around the world. Hi, Kristen. Welcome. Hi, Heidi. Hi, Dave. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. All right. Talk a little bit about you, Kristen. Kristen Meekoff is a licensed master's level social worker, co-author of the best-selling book, A Widow's Guide to Healing, a life coach, and a resilience and wellness expert. She helps people share their message and expand their reach with integrity and authenticity. Kristen has advised some of the most influential people in the media and politics. So Kristen, this has been a long time coming. I've wanted to interview you for the longest time. So we're so excited to have you on the podcast I first heard about Kristen through her book, A Widow's Guide to Healing, back in 2015. Um, You know, as everyone knows, I devour books. um, And I did this especially after my husband, Arnell, passed in 2014. Lots of my friends and family were just sending me books about grief and widowhood to, you know, to help me. 2015, which is when your book was published, um, I bought my first copy. And I remember when I first, after after I um, read the first few chapters, I was thinking, you know, wow, like I wish I'd read this back in 2014, soon after Arnell passed. You know, it's such a great book. It's full of pragmatic and practical advice. And then, you know, with your interviews with widows, so you interspersed stories from widows that you spoke with around the world. So that made me feel less alone. And then a lot of the advice that was published in the book just reinforced and validated a lot of the um, the decisions I made within the first year, because as we all know, a lot of the advice we get from other people is, you know, don't make any big decisions within the first year because, you know, you've been, you have trauma brain basically, yeah. right? So, yeah. So we, before we really get into your book, let's begin with your story. Kristen, Heidi's talked about you somewhat in the past and I'm very intrigued about your journey from South Korea to Michigan, uh, to Kenya and New York, and, and also how you suffered your first significant loss at a, at a very young age which I can somewhat relate to as my my son lost his mother at a young age as well. Tell us about yourself. Tell us about your story. Well, it's true. It started in South Korea um, before, actually before I can remember. So it's no secret. I was born in in 74 and I don't know the date I was born. I'm probably um, obviously not the only person in the world adoptee who doesn't have exact paperwork um, to document that. So many children in South Korea in 74 or around the 70s, I guess I should say, did not have um, formal documentation of their uh, adoption and the wow. date they were born and um, lineage as far as knowing relatives. So I've never met anyone that I know of that uh, shares the same gene pool as I do. Yeah. Then um, approximately three months after, I'm saying approximately, like I said, I don't know my birth date. In June, um, I came to the United States to uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, actually Chicago, and then to Grand Rapids, we flew into Chicago. 
and I was adopted by my parents. And then, um, as you said, unfortunately, in, in 79, I suffered um, a traumatic loss. My father, who had cancer since the um, his mid-20s, uh, died very, wow. um, you know, painful in the sense it was bone cancer. So yeah. uh, that's the first time I met a widow, who was my mother. Uh, mm-hmm. Both sets of my grandparents were alive, and I had never... Um, you know, been to a funeral and experienced death or anything like that. So it was two weeks shy of my fifth birthday. Wow. And it's something that, uh, you know, I've learned to live with now for over four decades. And I think it's important, you know, for um, people to realize that when an, a loss like this occurs, you don't just get over it and you don't just overcome it. And you don't just like, you know, it's kind of like an amputation, I say, because you don't just grow a new limb and, oh, well, it's next year, it's the following year, it's four decades later, you must be over it. You've learned to right. live with it and you've learned to cope with it in the very best way possible. Absolutely. I mean, even with losing your spouse, you know, mm-hmm. Heidi and I found each other, but that doesn't take away from the loss that we we endured and, and that we still grieve our person every day, you know, absolutely. But you can't replace a person. And I tell people that because- you know, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, obviously lost her son, who was my father. Um, and she was often asked, uh, she was in her 60s when it happened, you know, how many children do you have? And she would always kind of hesitate because, you know, obviously my father had died at that point. I mean, I'm talking about when she was asked that question. Mm-hmm. And then she said she became very comfortable saying three because, you um, you know, you can't replace a child and his presence was still very much with her. Yeah. Yeah. Much in the same way, you know, that Dave and I have entered this relationship, you know, I always make it clear to friends and family and to Benji that, you know, just because we're together doesn't mean, you know, my late husband Arnell was replaced by Dave or that Bianca mm-hmm. was replaced by mm-hmm. me. Like you said, mm-hmm. we don't replace people, even animals, you know, I'm going through mm-hmm. a, rough patch with my senior dog Ziggy who is my grief puppy you know he's my ESA emotional support animal and you know I have another dog but you know if you know actually when the day comes when we have to say goodbye to Ziggy I know also just from my experience with grief with Arnell that you can't replace Ziggy you know he will never be replaced in my heart especially with everything that I experienced with him and how he helps me with my grief I actually posted a picture of Ziggy and I that you took, Heidi. Wow. Oh, did you? A couple of years ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. Cool. Yes. Uh, at Instagram stories, um, maybe an hour ago. I don't know. But oh, yes. Wow. So Ziggy was on my mind. <laughs> oh, yeah, thank great. you. That's so sweet. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine that's probably a, a unique experience when you lost your partner, having your, your mother already been a widow. She could relate to you. And that was, may have been a source of uh, comfort with you two having each other in a similar shared experience there. Yeah, it's interesting too. I just want to go back to something, you know, Heidi yeah, said about grief support animals. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom, so I was in the 70s, they didn't have the internet and things, you know, weren't yeah. as available to children in grief and loss, books, et cetera. And she actually did get me a, a Welsh Corgi. Oh, so nice. this was about when I was three. So I think I'd had the dog about a year and just, I think it was very intuitive for her to know that a dog, no one told her that, but you know, it's pet therapy. It was comfort. It provided support. Yep. And I, you know, when possible, you know, it's not always possible when possible. I think it is helpful for children to have, it doesn't have to be, you know, a dog. It could be something else that they care for. Mm-hmm. 
I don't mean another, I don't mean a sibling, but I'm talking about, you know, something that they're not fully responsible for. But I, I really feel that it does help children very much to understand that um, there is that unconditional love that you get from an animal. Absolutely. So Absolutely. I want to say that, you know, that that was very helpful that my mom did that for me so early on, you know, like I said, long before Google or support animals, mm-hmm. or right. that was like a thing for mm-hmm. And she just knew that intuitively, right? Nobody yes, told her. Yeah. Someone, I mean, someone obviously arranged with a dog and everything, mm-hmm. but yes. Yeah. I can agree with that. My, my, so my son was three when Bianca passed away and we had a dog, Apollo. Oh, oh. And, and he was an absolute sweetheart, big mush. And, and Benji definitely, you know, clung to him and it was a nice uh, support. Unfortunately, we, we lost him too. Very young. He was only six, uh, two years after Bianca passed. But now we have Zena oh, and so Ziggy. <laughs> so, oh, Z and Z. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> Benji's certainly happy to, to have them around. Yes. Yeah. You can see how it really picks him up and, and makes him happy, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it just... Animals it's, do that too. Yeah. I mean, it's just written on his face when she starts cuddling and when he starts cuddling with Ziggy and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, back to your book. Let's, let's talk about your, oh. your book, A Widow's Guide to Healing. Uh, tell us about your, your process in, in writing the book. What, what prompted you to write it? So my husband died in November of 2007 and I live in Michigan and with daylight savings time, you know, it got, it gets like literally dark outside at 6 PM basically. So I was alone, like physically and emotionally. And every, I went back to work very, very soon afterwards because I was, I was actually concerned about losing my job. Um, And I'd used up all of my time to take care of him, my time Mm off. And so, um, I would come home from work and it was physically, like I said, dark out. And I was, I was always a reader, but I read even more. And I read every book I could about grief and loss. And again, in 2007, the internet was not as robust as it is now, but Amazon still had the, if you've read this, try this yes. next or something. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I'm not saying like literally Amazon, I'm saying kind of my own friends were kind of that Amazon person for me. And so I read everything I could, like, it didn't have to be a story about a widow. It could be um, somebody who lost somebody, you know, a sibling, a parent. I was very curious how people coped with it, mm-hmm. how they coped physically, how they coped emotionally, how they coped intellectually, how they coped with the work, everything. So I was noticing, I read for about two and a half years. I couldn't find a lot of stories about women. It would be somewhere in the margins or parentheses, or they would reference it here and there. But unless you actually read a biography, an autobiography, the narratives of women, I was not finding front and center. Mm -hmm. And so I realized, um, you know, C.S. Lewis says, we read to know we're left alone. Mm -hmm. And I really connected with that quote. I read that uh, in some of my readings. And I thought that... um, if I'm alone, other women must feel the same way, not being able to read a story about them or mm-hmm. something that resonates with them. And no two losses are exactly the same. However, there are some golden threads throughout them. And so I decided I wanted to write a book that um, integrated the stories of as many women as possible. And so I started to travel the world. So as you mentioned, I went to Kenya to live, to learn to live. Uh, from widows who live on less than a dollar a day. I went to the backwoods of Montana, New York City, uh, where I interviewed a woman, Christy Coombs, who's in the book, who lost her husband 9-11, mm. to Boston. It's actually where I saw Christy, but, you know, all over. And I didn't care about their educational background, the financial background, if they had children at home, how the loss happened. I was just curious about how they 
coped with the loss. And mm-hmm. what I was finding time and time again, regardless of those things I just mentioned, that um, there were some there were some interesting themes. And I wasn't um, putting them as props. They were just coming up over and over again. So I realized that the theme of uh, loneliness and isolation, emotional isolation was a theme throughout. Yeah. Um, even when the losses were the same, as far as you could say, well, my husband also died from Alzheimer's or whatever, you know, um, that that's how I learned, as I said, no two losses are the same. And uh, that's how the chapters of the book came around because the themes kept coming up over and over again. Mm-hmm. So for example, um, the solo parenting chapter that came from Susan Toffler, who uh, actually did a blurb for the book, but she called it solo parenting. She lost her, her, uh, her spouse, the husband of, um, of several years in an accident in Paris. She was getting ready to take the two kids. She was on her way to the airport when she received a call that he died. It was an accident and um, very sudden, clearly. Um, and she called it um, solo parenting. And she talks about going to the social security office for the first time ever, having to file to get, you know, the benefits for her children, the financial benefits for the children. And she told me she remembers weeping Mm -hmm. and being hardly being able to keep it together, not even be able to, you know, get it out, articulate the reason that she was there. And uh, when she was finally able to say, you know, my husband died, this is, you know, I don't know what to do next. What forms do I fill out? Um, again, this is something that had to be done in person, not over the internet. Yeah. Uh, the woman said to her, oh, honey, you're just having a bad day. Oh, wow. Oh, geez. <laughs> and, she, you know, that was forever, as uh, you can imagine, seared in her brain. She remembers that. Um, yeah. And so... You know her stories, and she said, "You know, this is really solo parenting, Kristen." I remember she said that to me, and I didn't hadn't looked at it like that before because I'm not a parent. But you know, I, as I said, I, my my mom was a solo parent, right. and so that's how that chapter came around. That's why it's, you know it's solo parenting. The um, finances came up over and over, so it didn't matter if somebody had five dollars in the bank or five million. Women were telling me time and time again the relationship with money, with wealth, with managing money, with understanding how to. Uh, move for, proceed without having the go-to person, their spouse or partner was a constant stressor. And mm-hmm. so that's how that chapter came around. So yeah. the cha- titles of the chapters actually de- developed as a result of the women telling me what their most pressing concerns and stresses were moving forward after their loss. I think the term solo parenting the first time I encountered that term was in your book. Um, oh. For yeah, for the for the non-widowed folks who are listening, what is the difference between a single parent and a solo parent, and why is it important to understand this distinction? Well, a solo parent. So I'm not using like a psychological term. So I can just imagine the comments you're going to start getting when I when I when I'm about to say that. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, you know that's that like APA accredited term or something. But the way that I used it in the book, as I said, came about when um, Susan told me, you know, this isn't single parenting. And she was saying this isn't single parenting because she uh, said and explained to me, and I I see it clearly, is that single parenting typically happens when one of the parents uh, decides to leave the relationship and leave the, um, or there's a breakup that happens. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking a breakup that is not a breakup as a result of death. So um, that 
person is no longer um, part of the active parenting, is not contributing financially, is not physically present, not emotionally present, mm-hmm. is not there for or available to the child and or the, the parent, the other parent. Mm-hmm. So solo parenting is I'm defining it for, for purposes of my book mm-hmm. is that the, um, the co-parent is, is no longer available to uh, the child and or the other parent as a result of a death that's happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What made you decide to go to Kenya specifically? And what did you learn from speaking with widows there? Um, the average, So I was reading um, from actually another widow whose father was um, very involved with Doctors Without Borders. And she had traveled all over with her father because as uh, a pro- as the program, you know, like literally as, as a global program. Mm-hmm. And she was, uh, she put together trips for, um, at the time, I don't know about now because of, of COVID restrictions, but, um, and so I talked to her, she had lost her husband very early. Her husband had died in a plane crash and I was very comfortable with talking with her. I actually was thinking about her for the book. And she said she's putting together a very, very small trip for widows. I mean, small, not on scale, but as far as having a very intimate group. And I asked her if I could possibly join. And I, my husband and I, interestingly, were supposed to go to Kenya together. Mm. Oh, wow. And so when um, the word Kenya came up in her conversation that she was putting this together, um, it really piqued an interest for me. And I felt that this was still a way for me to go, even though obviously it wasn't with my husband. So that's why I had Kenya on my mind long before (laughs) we had actually, I mean, we had pretty much planned the whole thing out. So Mm -hmm. obviously he and I didn't go together, but what I learned from the women is, um, as I said, they were living less than a dollar a day. The women that I met were all solo parents. They were living in a slum called Kybera which the UN has rated it one of the most dangerous in the world as far mm-hmm. as um, lack of water, lack of running water, electricity, this extreme violence, um, lack of ability to access health <laughs> services. And so um, I spent several days with the women and I saw their home. Um, what was interesting is these women um, were still practicing gratitude and it really it astounded me because I was taking care of, um, not formally taking care, but watching this one woman's baby so she could do some other tasks. And she was always, you know, like looking back, seeing, you know, how her baby was and everything mm-hmm. while I was holding the baby. And at the end of the second day that she, um, she came to me and she brought me this, this bracelet. And she said, this is, I'm so appreciative for you taking care of my baby so I could do these other things. And I thought, oh my goodness, here's a woman who's acknowledging what I'm doing, not because I'm trying to get acknowledgement, but she saw what I was doing for her and she was practicing gratitude. And it was genuine, heartfelt, authentic um, type of powerful, you know, theme of, in her life. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I thought that was very inspiring because there are so many women that I've met who still have a chip on their shoulder because of their loss, who aren't able to move forward. They'll say thank you, but they really don't mean it. They haven't really explored their loss at a deeper level. And yet this woman who you wouldn't expect um, to be able to to have that because she's lacking water, because she doesn't know where she's going to get her next meal, because she doesn't know how she's going to care for her child is, is expressing this. So I was really, really moved by that. 
Absolutely. I mean, for someone like myself who grew up in the Philippines, a third world mm -hmm. nation mm -hmm. with poverty, just glaringly, mm -hmm. you know, um, visible everywhere. You know, as soon as we left our subdivision, you know, right outside my school, there were, you know, um, poor kids ask, you know, begging for money. Um, I always noticed, especially going back as, you know, a Phil Am Filipino American, going back and visiting my my homeland, um, I always noticed that they were just happy, you know, and of course, you know, just that's from the outside, but you know, in speaking with some of them, because you know, rather than just giving them money, usually I would actually talk to them and you know, some of them sold flowers on a string, like a lay. Um, and, you know, I would give them money and I would say, just keep the flowers, see if you could sell those to other people and make more money. And then I would try to talk to them. And there was just contentment, you know, and I think, you know, despite the challenges and the hardships in their lives as kids, you know, from day one, there's still there's a sense of gratitude for what they do have, you know, and they were just so grateful for the, you know, the money that I gave them. Um, I think that's um, a glaring difference between the lives, okay, so I can speak for myself, the life that I've led here prior to my loss, you know, just not really recognizing my blessings, what I have in my life um, versus, you know, these folks that I've seen growing up who have, have very little in their lives yet are so happy and, and grateful for what they do have. Absolutely. Um, you did a project called the Gratitude journal with Deepak Chopra. Um, how did this oh. project? Yeah. How did this project come about? And how did how did it turn out? Oh, so um, for those who don't know, I have the great honor and privilege of having Dr. Deepak Chopra as my mentor and dear, dear friend. Mm -hmm. And um, so my late husband actually um, inspired gratitude in me in 2002. I remember complaining about something. <laughs> it was very trivial at the time. And he said to me, uh, you know, we weren't married at the, at the time and there weren't smartphones. So texting wasn't an option. Mm -hmm. And he said, I want you to every morning to email me your gratitude list. Nice. And wow. I'm like, yeah, I don't really have time for that. I'm not doing <laughs> that. <laughs> I'm not getting up in the morning, emailing, you know? <laughs> and then he, he stuck with it. I'm like, ugh. <laughs> Like this gratitude is going to like, okay, I'll do it for a couple of days. And then I could tell he was, he was like pushing me more and more. Like you can't repeat the things. I'm like, wait a minute. You didn't say that in the beginning. They're like, what do you mean you can't repeat the, <laughs> what you're grateful for? And then, um, so we continued that, you know, through, through our marriage. And actually when he was very sick, um, he was still doing a gratitude journal. And one evening, as I said earlier, you know, it was very dark outside. I remember sitting in bed, I was eating I was eating my, my dinner in bed. I remember looking over on the other side of his side of the bed and on the nightstand was a spiral notebook. And I opened it, it was his gratitude journal, handwritten. And I realized at that moment, if there was one thing that I could do to help to change the trajectory of the way that I was healing, yes. it was to practice gratitude. Yep. And I start, I resumed doing the gratitude journal, not knowing, you know, what it would bring like physically, mentally, spiritually, but mm -hmm. I just knew that if there was, you know, like if you could tell me at that moment, you know, the, the, to resume doing that. And so um, Dr. Chope Deepak um, actually has done lots of studies um, on the physical uh, well-being of heart patients, for example, who have, um, there's a study, I believe that uh, in, I think in California that he was a co-author on 
um, well, several authors, excuse me, in the research that showed um, improvements in health, heart patients who practice gratitude after mm-hmm. the surgeries. Wow. And so when I told um, one of his CEOs that I wanted to do this, it was actually, I just pitched the whole thing in a text. And next thing I know, they're like, okay, we're doing it. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Because <laughs> I used to, you know, like doing a pitch deck, you know, thinking everything through, having slides, you know, having a concept, having social assets, you know, mm-hmm. I was like, whoa, whoa. And I li- literally thought of this on a rut. Like, what would it be? Wouldn't it be great if we could do a day of gratitude? So uh, as, as you know, you move forward on opportunities, you don't wait. Mm-hmm. And um, Deepak was, you know, on board. And so each day there was a different theme for gratitude. So one day was actually pets. Um, another day was authors, another day was to thank teachers, another day was to thank um, first responders. So each day had a different theme. And I, I still get, as you know, um, messages um, from people who have benefited from starting the practice of gratitude. Um, and then I'm still, um, you know, in close contact with Deepak. So it's something that I think has um you know, we talked about like your, your show, the title, like, you know, laughing at the odds. I mean, what is the odd that I would <laughs> be able to text, you know, yeah. Chope or whatever I want to, you know, awesome. that he responds clearly and that he's been able to, you know, to, to help me um, and did the, you know, the cover blurb for my book. And I mean, the thing was written before I met Deepak, but, you know, we talked about the odds, like, what is, what is the odds of, of that, of that mm-hmm. happening? And um, so it's, it's been an interesting journey. I think that that's a, a great idea, especially for on the widow end of things. Mm-hmm. You know, we we tend to, as widows, you know, get lost in our grief and uh, and and feel despair. So to kind of make yourself sit down and and think about what you're thankful for every day, uh, you you you'd be surprised what you come up with and how many people and and you know, family members and friends and pets and, and your home and whatever else that you might be thankful for. I think that's something that can really lift somebody's spirits without them even realizing it. And uh, I, I also, the other thing that I thought of as you were talking about this is it's pretty amazing that this came from your husband's idea. I think that's got to be hold a special place in your heart because of that, because it was really his, his concept to begin with and you took it and, and ran with it, you and Deepak. <laughs> well, you were right. So, I mean, I also think about that because it wasn't, I was not like thinking that this was going to, like I said, like last long term, I thought, you know, I'd do it for a couple of days and my husband would be like, okay, we're done. I was like, it did not <laughs> um, end it a few days. So it, it pushed me, but it inspired me. It's, it's really still is helping me to, to heal what I've had because there are rough patches that happened after, after, um, you know, any loss, I think it's very mis, uh, a misconception that after a certain point in your life that you don't experience another loss or a loss as a result of, of the loss. And that, um, so I think it's important to, as I tell many uh, women, um, in, you know, in my Facebook group that sometimes we have to go back to basics. And when I say basics, it means about self-care, which is, um, I think often distilled into, oh, well, you know, I just like get up in the morning, have self-care, but it's very important when a, a big wound has occurred, it can resurface in other things years later. 
and you think, oh, I'm triggered by so-and-so because they're jealous of me or this is just a work thing. But often it still goes back to the fact that you don't have your person to go to. You don't have your spouse to talk about a relationship that's um, tense or a, a, uh, a stressor at work or something else. And so I think it's important still to remember those practices when it comes time to healing. So the first time I encountered any type of gratitude journal or really just the concept of applying gratitude in our lives is I would say in the mid to early nineties, one of my post high school uh, friends um, I met actually in college for one year, we went to the same college and her brother had passed from brain cancer. And I I recall her telling me that when she and her family um, went through his things, um, they found a journal and it actually said gratitude journal. And I remember the impact on them and how it, it changed her perspective. Um, and then fast forward to 2014, um, I attended a mindfulness retreat at Blue Cliff Monastery, you know, the monastery that was founded mm-hmm. by Thich Nhat Hanh, as you know, um, you know, in that retreat, I, you know, they also emphasized practicing gratitude, um, <clears throat> excuse me. So for many years, actually, and I still do it today, you know, at morning and or at night, you know, I just wake up or before I go to bed, I'll hug Ziggy and Zena and I tell them how grateful I am for them, you know, for picking me to be their mom and for helping me through, you know, um, my loss and healing. Um, so it definitely creates this, it flips a switch in your brain when you change your perspective, right? So when you start thinking about, you know, just not focusing on what's missing in your life, but focusing on what is present in your life, it it changes, it flips something in your brain. And, you know, with your background, Chris, and I'm sure you can explain it better than I can. But for me, definitely, it just changed my outlook. And it changes even my day when I start doing this. Right. So, you know, even though I have, I I had a master's in social work before, um, you know, I I was married and, and the loss happened, but I was talking to somebody the other day and they're like, oh, well, you know, you were kind of like prepared because you had a unique vantage point, you know, having a degree and humanity, you know, humanistic standpoint. I said, actually nothing prepared me for this, for the loss. Um, I certainly think that I had some certain skills that, you know, like I understood certain things about, um, you know, like doing a medical appeal and things of that nature, because I, I knew that was possible. But, um, you know, to your point, the lens of grat when you see things through the lens of gratitude, it does change the way that you are open to healing and the possibilities of it. So I think to that, um, the people, women that I've seen do the best as far as and this doesn't mean that they don't have bad days or difficult times after the loss, but the ones that are the most resilient in the sense that they have very healthy coping mechanisms and healthy relationships post loss, um, relationships, personal and professional, it's important to note, are the ones that do have a mindfulness component to their healing. Mm-hmm. And it's, mindfulness component that may or may not include gratitude, but often um, meditation in the sense of um, formal, as you said, you tend to blue cliff or it could be non-formal that they do on their own. It could be with an app. It could be with prayer as part of their journey. But usually um, that is something that is mentioned with women that I've um, had the good fortune of knowing, working with and speaking with for the book. It's a mindfulness component. Yep. 
as you alluded to, I, I understand that you obtained your BA in psychology and, and completed mm-hmm. the clinical master in social work program at uh, the University of Michigan, and you're, mm-hmm. you're a licensed yeah. social worker. I, I do have to say, as you as you said, that's that's got to be an interesting perspective going through uh, the loss of your husband with that clinical background and trying to balance in your head the the emotional struggles of grief with the the clinical side of things that you know to be true uh, intellectually. Theories. Um, yeah. Theories. <laughs> are you still working as a therapist or are you, you focusing more on, uh, on, on being a wellness coach? I'm focusing more. I do have just a few right now, um, private uh, clients, but I don't do therapy. Um, I write for Psychology Day. I have a column with them. I've been focusing on Psychology Day, a lot of different caregiving pieces that they've um, been so gracious in uh, promoting. That comes as a result of something that I've written that, you know, like, promotion sense of pay promotion um as far as wellness i integrate a lot of mindfulness so it's not just somebody who's endured a loss through um death but death but some people have come to me as a, as a result of loss um during right. covid they've right. experienced relationship losses um other types of breaks with uh, dear friends that they've taken very personally it's been very rattling to them yeah um, not having the sense of being able to go back to their job as they know it so Using that perspective, mindfulness is one of the ways that I've uh, worked with the wellness component. And it's also, as I said before, just my own personal as well as professional. And then the experiences of having somebody like Deepak as my mentor has greatly influenced the way that I've been able to do coaching and, and work through you know, many different things with different people. So besides your book, A Widow's Guide to Healing, I should also mention that I found it so helpful. It had a tremendous impact on me that I ended up, one, writing a review on Amazon. And we, Oh, thank you, Heidi. Yeah, Dave and I were actually reading it. Maybe oh, we'll you were? read an excerpt of it. Um, it was long. It was very detailed. <laughs> I remember you did that. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, it was a good review. I'm, I'm definitely going to have to read the book now. I, I do. I, oh, yes. <laughs> Um, and I should also note that, you know, like I said, it had such a tremendous impact on me that I ended up purchasing, I think, three or four extra copies of which one I gifted to a newly widowed friend and the others I donated to a local library. So at the time I was living in Jersey City and wow. I donated um, copies. Um, and I remember how grateful they were because they hardly had any titles on that topic. Mm. Um, so besides the book, I have a multi-part question. Um, I know that you are still also writing, right? So you were published in Psychology Today in Huffington Post or HuffPo. Um, so why is writing and helping others, other authors share their stories so important to you? I noticed when I did a very early interview with, with a widow um, that I would write afterwards. You know, I, I was writing notes longhand. Um, Zoom really wasn't a thing, you know, back when I was doing all these, these interviews probably would have been helpful, but it wasn't. (laughs) And, um, you know, like recording devices weren't as, you know, I mean, there were, but it just, sometimes I just noticed that, you know, women prefer that I was writing, not like physically recording. So I I was respectful of that because I gave gave them that option. And I was realizing when I was doing longhand writing their stories that it was, I was finding healing for myself as well. And then um, what I wanted to share is one woman, I didn't know her. She emailed me. She said she heard about my project, 
which meant the book, and she was willing to talk to me. So I emailed her back and she said she preferred a phone call. So I called her and she told me about her husband who had, who had at the time um, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. It was a very long journey from the initial diagnosis to his death. Many things happened in between. I was listening to her share it. And um, at one point she stopped talking and then I kind of like looked at the phone and it was like this long pause and I said something, but she didn't say anything after. And I actually, I actually was concerned that maybe she hung up on me. I was like, Oh, (laughs) going well, you know, like, Oh, now what do I do? And she said, you know, hello. And I said, Oh yes, I'm so sorry. I thought for a moment, you know, I lost the connection or something. I didn't want to interrupt you. And she said, you're the first person that's listened to my story without interrupting me. Wow. And she said, I even a therapist who doesn't let me do that and she at that moment said something just happened like and she meant healing with something that just happened and so I understood from that perspective that telling us one story and writing one story is extremely powerful component in healing it doesn't change anything that's happened clearly and her and I actually had never met in person she just you know did, that just wasn't a part of, of the process but she wrote to me later that she actually felt a healing taking place in being able to share her story, even though I wasn't responding with yes or asking questions. And so I think it's really helpful um, for women who, even if they share their story in a group therapy setting, or maybe they have a podcast like you or are able to write as, as I am able to do professionally and also personally, to be able to share the story with one person who's able to listen without judgment and without interruption. And I know the women who shared with me that they've done that have found it to be very uh, therapeutic because there's usually not one point in the healing component that there's a pivot towards um, the healing you know it's many different combination of many different things but I think it's important and even if you've done it and you feel stuck to go back and to, to do it again or do it with yourself and if you can't do it with somebody else what I encourage you to, to start doing it longhand um, there is something that's a little different that happens when you're when you're writing um, or if you have to do it, you know, many smartphones allow recording as well. So getting it out, if you record your story, even if nobody listens, like you don't feel like you have that person who's going to do it without judgment, that's another way to, to share your story. That's a great idea. Recording yourself. I hadn't thought about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing I've shared throughout so far, I think seven or eight episodes of this podcast is mm-hmm. that I did intensive therapy for over a year starting in 2019. Um, and in that we did, you know, trauma therapy and grief work and just, you know, talking, you know, having people hold space for me to listen, just listen without judgment, without interruption and just have me share my story whenever I was ready. It didn't happen every day in, in group therapy, um, but just having that space that was held sacred, right, for me um, and for others who took their turns. Um, and then, you know, just seeing all these um, widow blogs. And I, I think they're great because they're, like you said, you know, they're sharing their stories and in our group also. So whenever we have new widows who are introduced to our group who join us, during their first, I guess, um, participation in our meetups, I make sure I spend time like one on one time in that evening or that day event, and just talk to that person and just listen. And I try to 
do active listening, right? And I just don't interrupt. And I think it's really important to to allow people to share their story, whether, like you said, it's, you know, just them recording or in writing. Um, and I don't know what it is exactly. Maybe you can explain what is what happens in our minds when we're actively writing things out by hand. One of the things I learned in therapy was the benefits of journaling, like physical journaling. You know, get a nice book, you know, beautiful book that encourages you to to write, and get a nice pen that writes just like fluidly. What is it about that that physical act of writing that that helps us so much? There's some interaction with you know hand eye. Um, movement or coordination? I think, so I don't know the scientific explanation, but there have been studies that show that we do remember things better when we write things down, long hand. Uh Yes. So I think that there's that component. I think that there's also a component, again, I'm not a scientist, so I don't know how scientific what I'm about to say is is documented and supported, but I think when we do, like I wrote my book long hand. People are really surprised. I actually wrote the book long hand. Mm -hmm. And Wow. Yeah. Yeah. My uh, agent was like, what, what's going on here? <laughs> but um, because what happens is when we do things for myself, I should say, I, I have noticed others have told me this as well, but when we're on a computer, we tend to edit, we edit our thoughts, we backspace, we see things that are underlined, we're, we're saying, oh, well, that sentence doesn't make sense. And so when we do it longhand, what I encourage people to do is do it without edits like don't worry about the spellings don't worry about the sentences grammatically correct and when it's free flow truly we tend to be more open with ourselves and not worry that we're trying to correct something because as soon as we start to correct something in in the editorial mode i think we use it lose the flow of our writing of our thoughts because we're quickly going oh that doesn't make sense i should put you know a semicolon there no maybe it's not a semicolon you know and then we start to go on our brain can only focus on so much and that interrupts the healing flow of our thoughts and of our narrative. Even if it's just for a split second, there's an interruption. So I, that's why I encourage recording is good because, yeah, you can you can start to talk over yourself, you start to interrupt yourself, whatever it is, but, but it's still getting you know the thoughts up. But writing for me and for women, other women that I've I'm saying women because it's women who I interviewed for the book. Mm-hmm. You know, they have said, "Oh, I didn't realize until I started doing it." Like there's value in doing it. Again, yes. this change things. But whatever can help you begin to practice, there's a process that happens when you share your thoughts with yourself. And sometimes you do get insight into something that you didn't realize was going on to a problem that is solved through the right. Like you're just able to see it differently or you didn't even realize yourself that you were thinking of it that way. Or you realize, geez, I really am angry about this. I didn't realize I was holding this (laughs) resentment. I thought I was over this, you know? So things can surprise you as well when you write things out. I agree. I did a lot of journaling. Um, I, I was just typing, usually on oh, my okay. iPhone at like three in the morning. <laughs> That's the journaling I did. And like you said, it was just, I just let it flow. I was often in the zone and it was just like a steady stream of consciousness. I didn't care about, you know, that I'm, uh, you know, uh-huh. like, I'm so strict on like spelling and grammar and uh-huh. I didn't care. I just kept <laughs> writing, writing, writing. I should actually Good. just reread that at some point. Your writing is obviously <laughs> clearly therapeutic for you? Uh, would, would you say that it's helped you with your with your grief? It has, you know, and I didn't realize it was going to because sometimes we start to do things that just instinctively, we don't know how much of a help it's going to be until you look back later on and people are saying, well, you didn't do this, but you did that. And so I've just, I, it was a, a non-traditional approach, perhaps, as I said, in, in 2007, there weren't apps, you know, at least I right. didn't have a smartphone with a whole bunch of apps, you we weren't downloading, you know, Messenger and things like that. So I kind of left up to my own devices to figure lots of things out. Right. And because I um, 
most of my friends, with the exception of one person, you know, hadn't lost a spouse. They were planning baby showers. I was still getting invited to weddings, you know. Yeah. So I wasn't in a community of women. You know, I didn't know Heidi at the time or anything uh, where, you know, loss was spoken about. So I, I had to figure it out for myself what, yeah. how, what, what to do to help me myself, like get through each day, sometimes each hour. And shortly after the book came out, somebody came to me and said, you know, do you do coaching for like, they call it coaching. I'm like, I don't do coaching. What are you talking? You know, like I was, I was like, where's this coming from? But you know, they were uh, in New York. So they were a little ahead of the, of the game. as you probably know, and asked me if I would um, help them with their book. And I was like, Oh, I haven't done that. But I, you know, I didn't really think about it. And then I noticed there was some healing taking place in her as well when I was helping her with her book. And then I was, it kind of just, I guess, underscored for me, the importance of something I always knew about healing, but watching her go through that process of her book really helped me to see that it's a value because sometimes when, you know, everybody has their own blind spot, you can't always tell if, if that's going to be helpful. Um, right. So I, I've started to do that uh, professionally, you know, how, uh, people share their stories, whether it's a podcast or writing your books. And it's, it's because I noticed that healing takes place. It's just something that's very valuable. And others find it valuable too, to, to learn about other people's stories or their words. Words are very impactful. You can go back to them. You know, images come to things, people's minds when they see certain words. So I think it's, it's helpful as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in episode three, um, I think it was finding your purpose with Michelle Neff Hernandez. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you, you've had the pleasure of meeting Michelle yet. And if not, I will certainly facilitate an introduction. I mean, she's okay, wonderful like you. you. Oh, yeah. Um, so she's the founder and CEO of Soaring Spirits mm-hmm. International. And one of the uh, one of her, I guess, centerpiece projects is Camp Widow, which is this ongoing mm-hmm. weekend. We, it's really a conference, I think, you know, conference slash retreat. And, you know, colloquially, I think it started getting called Camp Widow. And she said she stuck with that. She also established the, um, uh, what is it called? Oh, Soaring Spirits Resilience Center. And it's at Shriner University in Kerrville, Texas. And what they did was they surveyed widows and she was astonished. Um, her partner was astonished at the the responses they got. So they got about fifteen hundred responses from widows, and what from that what they ended up um, establishing was a resilience scale to be used both in a clinical setting and also you know for personal use. Um, and I think she also wanted to apply it to I guess um, training for you know for doctors for medical providers so it would help them I guess assess their their patients and clients. So in your research for your book, and I know that you, you know, you uh, spoke with many widows, including those in Kenya, what did you learn about resilience? So I'm, I'm fortunate, I'm not familiar, you know, um, with the scale that you that we referred to by Kenny and the second part mm-hmm. of it, as far as what I've learned about resilience, they have what I have noticed, and not just from the widows in Kenya, but I mean, that's the extreme as far as, you know, not having running water, electricity or access to, you know, a meal um, is that there is a component and it's difficult to articulate, but there is something about them that has, making, has made a choice, a conscious choice to be able to yet to know that they are going to be, um, to see things through a lens of light, of luminosity. 
Mm-hmm. And when you've made that conscious choice, whether it was someone who, who was told them or taught them or is instinctual, I'm not 100% sure, you know, it really does change the ability to, uh, to cope with stressors later on in a way that does not uh, dissolve the spirit, one's spirit and one's physical being. So many women as you may know, have um, suffered broken heart syndrome after, which is understandable, the loss. There's actual, you know, a medical term for it. Um, I did. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, the the body does break, you know, physically. Death does damage. And the resilient people that um, that I have met, and I'm I'm calling them resilient. I know you can't see, you know, the the air quote, like truly resilient are the ones that have, understood the power of healing and have taken it very seriously and are actively working on it. And that includes women in Kenya. So while they don't have the advantage of having running water every day, they still understand that they're able to do something that is within their control and not only within their control, but how they go about the control. So they're not going about the control in a resentful, angry, bitter way, but they're saying, look, I can go and uh, get help in this way. I can be grateful. I can, be deeply content despite my circumstances. So those are the three things that I've noticed from the women in Kenya. And then that translates, I think, into better outcomes overall. Does, like I said, doesn't mean that you're not going to have a good day. doesn't mean that you, you know, you're not going to get upset if somebody cuts you off or you don't get the promotion or you get snubbed by you know, an in-law or something. That, that doesn't mean that you're always going to have a good day. But overall, as far as overall health, mental, physical, and emotional well-being, resilience is very is a very important factor and that and I would argue it's something that's really important to teach children as well because they do watch how you interact what not just what you're saying but how you're actually doing you know children feel many things a really good parent could walk into their room I remember my grandmother my paternal grandmother could walk into the room and see me as a child and know if I had a good day or not hmm. she didn't have to ask me a question did you have a good day she could instinctively tell because she could feel it and she could see it. And that's how children often feel and see their, um, the adults in their lives. They don't have to say to the parent, oh, did you have a good day? They can just feel and see it and know it. So I encourage that for a number of reasons because resilience affects physical health and well-being overall. Yeah, yep. I agree. Yeah, I think as, as uh, something that we, we want to do here, as, as we mentioned, is, is sharing our stories having everyone on this, on this show, all the episodes that we've done, all the widows that we've had on here are amazingly resilient. And there's so many others that we haven't spoken to yet, but um, you know, I think that's uh, a very amazing attribute of, of some of the widows that we've met, including the, the three people on this conversation right now. We're all yes. give ourselves a pat on the back for resilience. <laughs> yes, 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 yep. yes. All right. So we're uh, getting close to the end of the episode mm-hmm. here. So I'm going to throw our theme question at you. Our podcast is named after this Charles Bukowski quote. We are here to laugh at the odds and live our life so well that death will tremble to take us. What does this mean to you? And how do you laugh at the odds? Um, actually, very early on, but I might say early on, I'm talking days after my husband's funeral, um, I was introduced to the work of Dr. Frederick Beekner. And there's a quote in one of his books in which he talks about George Butrick. And about 
he was a minister and looking at some of the religious inward coronations that happened. And he said it took place for him at that moment. I'm going to read it here so that I don't mess up the, the quote. He said it happened among confession and tears and great laughter. And in many ways, I can relate to this because my own inward journey happened amongst great fears, very, at times very little faith, and then laughter because in this, I still feel an enigma about the presence of God, of the universe, and of others who have helped to uh, provide healing. And, you know, I was laughing earlier when I said, what was the chance of having somebody like Dr. Deepak Chopra as my mentor and dear right. friend and able yeah. to text at any time in awesome. my healing journey? Um, what's the odds of that happening? But it's because of, of my book that right. it happened. And so, you know, I'm grateful for, um, for people like both of you, Dave and Heidi, because um, that helps people understand that, you know, laughter is, is very healing and it's still possible that uh, after a loss. And I think people forget that, that it is possible because um, so much has been taken away from them. They don't even know that going on after something that is tragic and is traumatic as losing their, their best friend, their loved one is possible. And so knowing that you can still laugh, um, you know, what is sometimes dark humor, it can be very healing. Yeah. So thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I have a quote of the episode I'm going to read for you. When you deny your story, it owns you. When you own your story, you get to write your own brave ending. When you deny your pain, it owns you. When you own your pain, it sets you free. By Brene Brown. I like that one. That was beautiful. Yeah, she too is a social worker as, as I am. So it's nice to be in a good company. <laughs> is she? I didn't know that. Yeah, she has a master, or she's a doctor, but oh, I wow. have a master. So, That's yeah. amazing. Well, thank you so much, Kristen. This was great. I feel like there's so many other questions we wanted to ask you, but you know, maybe we'll have you back on the show thank <laughs> for you, a future Heidi episode. We would love to have you again. Can we do a part thank two? Thank you. I beat my yes. honor. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Kristen. Thank you so okay. much, Kristen. Thank you. Take care. Please subscribe to our show and give us five stars and a positive review on Apple Podcast. You can also find us on Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and YouTube. And don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Laugh at the Odds Podcast with Heidi and Dave. And remember to always laugh at the odds. <laughs>